The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Last weekend, I took part in the Los Angeles Center of Photography's Street Week. It was a week-long celebration of street photography. It featured presentations by a dozen photographers, including Matt Stewart, John Free, Rinzi Ruiz, Michelle Groskopf, Julia Dean, David Ingraham, Stephen McLaren, Dana Barsoon, and Norman Schwartz. It was an amazing weekend. I was really impressed by the diversity of the work that was being produced by all of these photographers. If you missed it, I hope you get to it next year. It's it's a must-go-to if you're in Los Angeles. However, in the near future, I will hopefully be releasing an episode which includes small bits of these photographers' presentations in a future episode. Kevin Weinstein is another one of the photographers that presented uh, this past week and whose story and work really struck a chord with me. He has worked as a photojournalist, a documentary and street photographer, and as an event photographer for high-end and celebrity clientele. We really hit it off and I was really looking forward to sitting down and talking with him. And as you'll hear, we had a lot to talk about. This is a little longer than usual, but I hope you enjoy every minute as much as I did. Coffee's good. Yes. Good coffee. Good coffee. <sighs> I like that wall. The Instagram wall. Oh, the, is that what that is? Yeah, it's the cheap and effective, uh, or ineffective, the cheap and effective <laughs> way of decorating. Yeah. Like 25 cent prints, $3 frames times... One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, I don't know, 24? Oh. Yeah. Where'd you uh, get the prints then? Uh, where did I get those done? Probably White House, Custom Color, maybe Bay Photo, Simply Color. Those are all three places I vacillate. Yeah. If I want to do cheap prints, depending upon who has a special going on. <laughs> I'm embarrassed at my own house. I have, there are prints that when we first moved up, we put up. Of my work. Yeah. But most of the work was a, a result of test prints that I had made while I was evaluating printers. Yeah. So I would just do a shots and just because of the color or the tonality, not because it was like my favorite work or my best work. Right. But when it came time to have a house to put prints up, well, let's put this stuff up. Yeah. And so when people come over and they hear my photographer, I'm sort of embarrassed to you know, because it's like this big flower picture up on the wall. And I'm yeah. like, I don't photograph flowers. I don't but, photograph flowers. But it's up there. I shot that. <laughs> it's like that much better than that, honestly. Yeah. You're the new Galen Rowell, right? <laughs> um, no, that makes sense. I mean, well, you know, these are all uh, iPhone pics. Yeah. is That's the, the first thing. I traditionally don't display my own work in the house because I get sick of it pretty fast. Yeah. There, if you look behind you, there's one that's still standing. 
the other ones I got uh, frustrated with and I took them down. And uh, so I have these nails and holes in the walls showing. But the middle one is is kind of funny because uh, that one has been hanging in my house for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. I have some friends work that I, I have. We've like done print exchanges and stuff like that. But I've never been one to... Being much of a decorator, mm-hmm. I kind of leave that to my wife to do. Oh yeah, but you know, I, I when I go to other people's places, I go, you know, there is there's a good reason to to hang up work, whether it's your own or someone else's. Yeah, around your space so as a way of claiming it. I've started um, just in the last six months, started hanging other people's work. Scott Strazani is. Uh, do you know Scott? No, going to have to interview him. He's a, a newspaper colleague of mine from Chicago. 2000 to 2001 um and then he went off now works at the san francisco chronicle um and he is pretty well known for his uh iphone street photography Mm -hmm. so he had a print sale and i bought six and now i can't stop buying people's prints Uh yeah so i'm starting to hang other people's work which is nice because i don't tire of other people's work yeah i tire of my own very quickly usually i have about 48 to 72 hours before i'm it's time to move on (laughs) I sat down soon after we did our presentations at LACP this past weekend. Inspired, you know, by Matt Stewart, I finally got the fire in me to sit down and go through 11 years of work. Yeah. And, like, pick what I thought was my better images. It took me about two days. And then uh-huh. culled from about almost three terabytes of files down to about 400. That was my first pass. Yeah. Talking about, you know, getting tired of your own images. It's right. It's like... But uh, yeah, yeah, some could, of that that work that I showed, the early stuff, which is stuff I'm just getting reacquainted with after you know two and a half decades, and I'm already sick of staring at it. Yeah. You know, by the time I've discovered it and organized it and archived it, and you know, dealing with the negatives and getting them all together and getting some scans done and filing the prints, it's like, oh my gosh, it's only been two months, and yet I don't want to look at it already. Yeah, I mean, give me the perspective. At first, I could feel myself going, "Oh, this stuff sucks." Yeah, and I'm like going, "This is 11 years ago. <laughs> just, just wait, just wait." And I started progressing, and I, I got to see the change, which I'd never really sort of considered. I mean, I talk to people about this, about their work all the time, but sitting there in front of your own work and just looking at the span of, Mm -hmm. and this is not even talking about the film stuff I had shot. This is just like digital digital. okay, and just going from, you know, 11, 12 years ago to now, I was like, oh, okay. And I could see a moment when things started to change and I could finally see like a consistency, but now it's trying to call it down to eventually 52 images. Oh, wow. So it's going to be an interesting. interesting and you're doing journey. what with it? Uh, I'm just probably going to be updating the website. Okay. Uh, I'll probably put together a, a book, probably a self-published book yeah. uh, of the work, and just have a sense of you know where I'm at. You know, as is, is there any way of editing this stuff down and having it make sense as a as as a selective body of, of work? Yeah, it sounds like you and I are in the same spot. The same place. Yeah, because I've just been into producing the images and not really thinking about what I'm going to do with them. Yeah. And largely what I've done with the images over all these years is is use them as illustrations in the books and the magazines articles, magazine articles I've written. Mm-hmm. So it's always been sort of short term. You know, I create the images and then they sit on the hard drive if they don't show up in, in an article or in a book. Right. And that's about it. Or, yeah. you know, when I'm teaching, I'll pull images a lot. But um, beyond that, I wasn't exhibiting in fine art galleries. I wasn't putting together a monograph. I wasn't doing anything like that. So, 
you know, for me, it was just make pictures, make pictures, make pictures. But now he's, when it comes to time to be more introspective, then all of a sudden you're having to look at it with a more critical eye mm-hmm. and have a little more perspective. I'm, you know, that process for me has been really magical in the sense of, you know, I touched on it at the, at the LACP talk, you know, things that, that I thought were a result of a modern kind of refined eye, something the way that I see today or I shoot today or what I seek today. Mm. And it wasn't until I went back and started looking at this stuff from 25, 30 years ago where it's like, oh my gosh, the way that I see today is the way that I saw then. I just know how to approach it in a much different way. You know, I think that's what I liked about that first image, you know, the light in that first image uh, from uh, Yosemite taken just months after I picked up a camera. It may not be an image that means anything to you or anybody else, but it, it means so much to me because it was the first time where I was able to go back in time. But regardless, going back and, and, and like I mentioned that day at the, at the talk, how wonderful it is to have a chronicle of, you know, a visual, these artifacts that you can hold. It's proof of mm-hmm. what you were seeing and what you were thinking at that time. And to have uh, years and years or decades of that is pretty fascinating because yeah. most people, we all, you know, you wake up and you're 45 years old, but yet in my head... I'm kind of still 22. And then I saw this picture, the picture that you took of me uh, uh, at LACP. I love that photo, but, and it's not a but, I love that photo. And it's striking at how adult I look, how mature I look, Mm -hmm. how in my 40s I look, you know? So, you know, there have been people who have done like, they do a self-portrait every day for 15 years. It's that kind of thing, except that's a little too anal for me. I love being able to go back and see things that I was obsessed about decades ago. Yeah, And it's, and it's interesting, this, this idea that when you look back at your work, you can see basically the seeds of what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. You know, because I... That was my experience sitting down looking at that work. Even though I lack the consistency that I think I have now, I could see that I was being pulled to certain scenes and, and, and photographing them in certain ways that I still see now, but in some ways, hopefully a little more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and a little more complex. When you went back to that early work, uh-huh. what, and you said that some of the things that you, that appeal to you now, you saw then. What were some of those things? Light has always, you know, light uh, from very, very early on has, even before I picked up a camera, light has always attracted me. So it made sense that when I picked up a camera that I was drawn to the quality of light from the get-go. You know, and this is back in a day before the internet. So it wasn't like I had grown up on the computer and looked at all these Instagram photos and Facebook photos and Magnum website and was so saturated on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I always feel like I feel bad for people who are getting into photography today. I feel like that would just influence me and distract me too much. Um, Back then, it was just something in my head and I picked up a camera and went out and sought it. So definitely light was the first thing. You know, I look back at, at, at a lot of that, that first project, which was, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that project is. It's, it, it kind of evolved over a little two year period of time, but it started out as nightlife. You know, what is this underground nightlife that I'm interested in? You know, strobe became, uh, very important very quickly. And the thing that I loved about strobe was the separation between foreground and background and the clarity. 
So I love clarity. I love light. I love nice light. I do obsess a little bit too hard about clean, organized backdrops mm-hmm. and also um, straight lines. I wanted to be an architect when I was very, very young. But then I realized you had to do math. And that that was uh, the end of that. The, uh, the, the portraits, you know, of these transsexual prostitutes and and performers, when I would go into their house, you know, I look at it today and I think, ah, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish, you know, because I have a more refined eye now. But I, you know, I would line up the lines and make sure everything's right. You know, it was a little bit uh, very, you no, know, it wasn't a little bit. It was very different than Diane Arbus. I was more concerned with a very clean image, very well organized. There'd be times where they're Apartments were so busy that I would just get them against a, the smallest blank wall I could find. Now I wish I had used their their apartments and the clutter because the ones yeah. that I did, I like being able to see these you know scattered empty ashtrays and cigarette butts that have fallen on the the table and stuff. Those were definitely some of the early things, and and those those few items, the the uh, clean backdrops, you know, getting away from. Too much uh, clutter and um, light and composition in these lines. It still plagues me today, and and it's it's something that I try to I try to I mean I definitely try to work with it, but it's also right. something I try to get myself to get over it. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to do that for thirty years, and mainly because I feel like it's so rigid. You know, is Matt Stewart called it uh, last week. He's like, it's, you know, these lines are so German. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed because I, I've always called it, you know, like, oh, I'm so anal with these backdrops and stuff. And, and Matt's like, oh, it's quite German. You know, I would love to be able to loosen up a little bit and, uh, and see in a, in a different way. But I, I get so focused on things in my head of what's important and what's not important. Mm -hmm. And I fall back into that trap. And maybe that's just the way it's supposed to be. We all have a different vision. You know, you could grab the same camera, we could stand right next to each other, and you're going to approach that transsexual prostitute in a completely different way. So when you were talking about that project, uh, you had talked about one in particular that you had met, and she invited you to photograph her performing. And, And I think you said, almost immediately, you knew you wanted more than just her performing that yeah you wanted, i want to get back into her apartment yeah and and, I, and I'll, I'll paraphrase what you said is that you wanted to know the secret world mm-hmm. you wanted to know that underlying thing that is not usually on the surface and i love the way that you phrase that tell me about that secrets i mean you know um you know drag queens and uh men who dress up in women's clothing if they've had the the transsexual operation or not um, regardless to me, that's, it's boring. It's always mm. been kind of boring, you know? So what it's a man dressed up as a, as a woman, or it's a man that is now a woman that doesn't really interest me that much. I don't think it's very fascinating, but what fascinates me is, uh, you know, where, where people live. So, you know, I was, I was photographing in these nightclubs, I was, you know, doing this nightlife scene and the underground scene in San Francisco. And, and really, after just about, I think, six months, I just couldn't get out of my head. You know, some of these people were, were kind of scary. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, um, you know, there are drag queens and then there are, you know, drag queens are kind of down now. 
those are the ones that I was attracted to. Um, and just constantly thinking like, what is your day job? Like, what do you do? Do you wake up at two in the afternoon and, and you know, where do you live in the city? And if you live in the Tenderloin, what, my God, what does your apartment look like? And, um, how do you make money? Like, I'm always interested in how other people make money and make mm-hmm. a living and get through this, this, uh, rat race that we're all in of, you know, trying to pay bills and, 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 uh, so I, you know, I'd become close, uh, with a lot of these, uh, these performers and it was a progression. You know, I would, I would, you know, I stuck out into the nightclub or I'd stayed out in the nightclub scene or the, the underground kind of nightclub scene. And, and then as I got to know them, then I was going backstage with them because I started to wonder like, where are these people going to? There's like a rotation of these performers coming out. And so eventually I would go behind stage and photograph these, these people. And then some of the, the local kind of transsexuals and the, the other crazy people that were, were at this club would go back there as well. That's where I started to kind of get introduced to what is behind this facade, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, this really does apply to, to average people too. It really had nothing to do. It has, this curiosity has nothing to do with men dressed up in women's clothing. It just, that's the opportunity that had presented itself. I mean, I can look at somebody walking down the street and wonder all these same questions. So, uh, then I met that one, uh, the one performer who invited me back to her house, her apartment, uh, which uh, she, uh, lived uh with her mom which was quite interesting little studio apartment 300 and something square feet cockroach infested it was um i remember wanting to get out of there faster <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> to say that you know but it was my first one and i ended up making two photographs that i that i love from that from that moment uh from that that night but i think that was part of the process was was to be you know somewhat scared there was something that i kind of it intrigued me that feeling was exciting and i think what ended up happening was it was more exciting the process was more exciting of you know how to meet the next one and you know some of these people it took months to convince to get over to their house it wasn't like people were just like sure but that game became very important to me Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at some of these, uh, negatives that I rediscovered from, uh, last year, uh, from this series. And sometimes I only took two rolls of film <laughs> and we're talking two and a quarter. So don't think 36 times two, which is 36 frames is on a roll of uh, 35 millimeter film, but this is two and a quarter, six by six. So I have 12 frames. So I'd walk wow. in and out of there with 24 photographs to choose from. Yet I could have been there for hours. So there was this other fascination with being able to also sit in their house and soak it in mm-hmm. and converse with these people and connect with them on a very different level. But I was always very, very happy to leave. Yeah. Um, and that evolved again. The, the, the drag queens to me were. The drag queens and the and the the kind of part timers, the people who had like office jobs during the day, uh, very quickly uh, became of little interest to me. And then I started to focus on these uh, more of the the transsexual prostitutes, mm-hmm. and that 
became a whole, it was almost like starting over again, because that is a very, very different group right. of people. Um, and that was, I had another picture of Lala, who was the MC at this place called the Motherlode, not here in West Hollywood, but the Motherlode in San Francisco. I don't know if it's still around, but that's where I was told where all the transsexuals would hang out and they would prostitute themselves out of this bar. And I thought that that was strange. Like, who are these men? And I really wanted to know who the men were. And I, I should have incorporated that into a project because I was fascinated by these men, but I couldn't really find any that would allow me to, mm -hmm. to photograph them. But they were heterosexual men sleeping and renting and purchasing a man who has been transgendered into a woman. And I find that extremely mind-boggling even to this day so i don't know maybe i shouldn't maybe i need to go back and do that part you know because i am bringing this project back and and maybe that needs to be done but uh once i got in with lala it was a lot easier yeah. you know because she was the ringleader and, and yeah i've talked to another photographer who sort of photographed the same community and they talked about you have to find the, the ringleader you mm -hmm. have to find the, the gatekeeper basically yeah in order to gain entrance because once you gain their confidence the door is open. Right. But it, it's not easy and it can take a while. Yeah. I mean, that that one seemed a little bit easier for me only because I didn't know what it was doing and it was the first project that I'd ever mm. done. So I didn't, I was just figuring all this out along the way. But while the, the I was switching over to the transsexuals, I still had the nightlife stuff. So there didn't seem to be a gap. Yeah. But when I left the transsexual series and went out to do the street kids, there was a lull about a six month gap yeah. in photographing because they were not letting me in. And I definitely didn't want to photograph the transsexuals anymore. So I was done with that. Right. They were part of my history at that point. Did not want to go back and redo or do any more to it. Um, I had gone on to other interests, but that was rough because you had, I had to be down there yeah. every day, just pushing, trying to get people to talk to me. And then I would get in with one kid and you study who is the ringleader. Mm -hmm. I would finally get in with them, but they're a transient community. And, um, there was this one guy, Skippy. I remember I finally got in with Skippy. I worked on that for so long. And two days after I got in with him, he fled and I was back at, you know, ground mm -hmm. zero again. So yeah, you have to find the ringleader. It really does help because that person is, uh, if you're okay, if that person's okay with you, anybody else that comes up after mm -hmm. that, nobody would ask questions. Right. I was, I was here first, according to them, you know. You know, what really resonated with me while you were talking was this whole idea of secrets. Mm -hmm. You know, because you, you, you talked about, you know, being gay and yeah. also from having a learning disability. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting because those are two things that when you're young, you keep secret. Uh-huh. You don't want other people to know because it makes you vulnerable. Right. I remembered feeling, feeling that exact, exact way for other reasons. This idea like there were things about me that I couldn't let other people know because it would make me vulnerable. And, and as I was listening to you, I kind of felt like, is that one of the reasons why I'm so curious about other people's lives? Is that why I really kind of want to know what's behind the facade? Mm -hmm. It was the first time I'd heard someone verbalize it where all of a sudden it made it click. Is that what you think? Because the, the the two projects that you started with are the kind of projects that usually come at after someone's been yeah. shooting for a while. Right. And you sort of dove in. And it seemed like it was, even though it was a photographic project, it seems like it was propelled by a more personal, a personal reason. Does, yeah. that, does that make sense? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I don't even think I have to respond to that. That was said so <laughs> well. I love you for that. Yeah. And you know, this, um, this kind of reflective, you know, being, you know, inside myself and thinking about, you know, this work and where I've come with photography and how I got to where I was. None, all, none of that I really thought about until a year ago. So it's, hmm. it's all, it's all about, you know, stop, stopping this kind of Gary Winogrand process, which is just constantly keep shooting and never look at what you're doing right. and stopping to see what the hell did you just do? It has been three decades. What the hell did you just do? And I didn't ask for it. It just kind of came to me. So I, you know, I, I write a lot because my, my thoughts and my head go much, much faster than my brain. So I sit down every once in a while and I just write. I just, mm -hmm. and I don't care what I'm writing. I just, it's usually about photography and what it means to me. So it was through that, that I started kind of piecing together this curiosity that I had from when I was a kid. I used to stare at people way too long way too long, <laughs> I, longer than it was, it was acceptable to stare at people. So I think about when I was a child, that curiosity was already there. Mm -hmm. The secrets. Yeah. I mean, that developed from a very young age. You know, I made a comment to my father when I was five years old. I didn't, you know, I, he picked me up. I still remember the scene. Uh, he picked me up and, um, and I told him, I said, I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. And he was like, oh, what's that? And I said, I, I think I want to be a girl. And mm. he just kind of looked at me and he got down to my level, which I love him for. Because uh, when you're doing that to a child, you know, you're not an authoritative figure. You're, mm. on, you're on their level. And he said, uh, just don't tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a smile on his face. Yeah. So I knew that he loved me, but I knew something was terribly wrong. So I had a secret mm. when I was five years old. And uh, the learning disabilities were starting to rear its, uh, were starting to become, you know, prevalent. And, and I, um, I struggled with that and it, it ruined my, uh, just my being, you know, I, I literally could not read and then understand what I had just read. It's fascinating watching my, my nephew right now. He's nine and he's going through the exact same thing very smart boy mm -hmm. but in terms of books and tests and all that stuff you can read him one paragraph about a man who got an apple off a tree and ate it and you ask him what did, you know what did we just read and he's like i don't know and it's like okay well i get it you know but when you're a child you don't have the tools to comprehend and digest and articulate mm -hmm. so you just you know i think when you're a kid you just kind of default to this uh that's where we start developing neuroses to be honest with you yeah. i don't know and we all have different stuff you know a woman might have felt you know had the same reaction i had as a as a child just because she's a woman and the people around her the way that they treat women i don't know or a, a person of a different color skin i don't mm -hmm. know what any of that's like i just know what it's like for uh, for me but i was also jewish i am also jewish so, you know, I had this learning disability, I had the Jewish thing, and I had this w weird fascination with boys in my class. But I knew that all of them were not normal because I didn't know many other Jews. I didn't know anybody else who was having trouble with schooling like I was. You know, by the time I got to high school, I had a full-time tutor, somebody to help me through every homework assignment. So it was a, it was an epic uphill battle. And, um, I think that led to 
You know, my parents, on top of it, I don't think I really touched on this. You know, I, I think I said I was born in the back of a gold Mercedes. You know, you know, we had these rooms in, in my house growing up. I just found out that I grew up in a 32,000 square foot home. I didn't know that. Really? I, I, I didn't know that until like two days ago. I need to ask my dad that. I read that in the, in his, uh, I, I went and Googled their divorce documents. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of nights ago before I'm going to bed. Good uh, bedtime reading. It was a huge divorce. It was really traumatic for, for everybody. And it's still traumatic. 30 years later, we're all still trying to figure out how to recover from it. I mean, I definitely was an upper middle class privileged child. But I was told to not look at certain things. Mm-hmm. That whole project, as I bridge this this together for you, that whole project on this nightlife and these transsexuals and these street kids were all things that I was fascinated by as a child. You know, I remember driving down Polk Street when I was, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. I think we were going to the theater because it was probably my birthday. I loved going to the theater and going to art galleries. That's what we did on my birthday. I remember looking out the window and I asked my parents in the front seat, I was like, what are all these people doing like it just looked like people were just hanging out in the street and kids my age 10 12 14 year olds and their response was don't look at them and the minute they said that i was like i want to know what the hell's going on Mm -hmm. i want to know what's going on somebody's got a secret so my parents had secrets you know this my mother was uh the wife of a very well-to-do doctor with the entertaining. We had this room in our house that was off limits. You were not allowed in there. It was only for entertaining. It was, you know, these facades. Again, we're going back to facades and secrets. So I had grown up with them. Clearly, those few things struck me. They may not have, those things may not strike anybody else, but they struck me as being very odd. So I... When I picked up a camera, it made sense. It was kind of like the fuck you. I'm going to go figure out what the hell that stuff was. And so I did. I dove right in. Those projects, the first four projects I did are projects, you're right, that people would do later on. That's why I think because I didn't know what I was doing, I really think it was fueled more by my own selfish curiosity. Yeah. And kind of the fuck you to my parents. It's like, I'm now old enough to go figure out what all this stuff is that you told me not to look at. Well, eventually you became working, you worked as a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. But I, I heard that that wasn't as satisfying as yeah. some of the personal projects. Yeah. And even though it gave you an entree to, to people's lives, yeah. it, why wasn't it as satisfying as the work that you had done previously? I think, you know, I think I'm going to be one of those people when I, when I, when I die that I, I think no matter what I do commercially to, and as long as I make money with my camera, I, I think I'm just never going to be happy. You know, that's kind of where I'm at right now. You know, mm-hmm. as I transition out of the second commercial way to, you know, for me to, to, to make money with this camera. And we can talk about that later if you want. Photojournalism, um, it sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you're a documentary photographer. You're interested in people's lives. How do you make money? Okay, well, I'll go work for a newspaper and a photo agency. You know, I didn't, I didn't like it for a lot of different reasons. I don't like bureaucracy, honestly. It really is difficult to live with. Uh, red tape, all that stuff, politics, favoritism, <laughs> you know. 
every newspaper has every editor, photo editor has their favorite photographer who always gets the, the best assignments. And, and you're basically always starting at the bottom and you have to prove yourself and work your way up. It, uh, it felt too quick. Daily newspaper assignments are just way too quick. You know, it's, uh, I was used to spending years with people mm. <laughs> and you don't have years. You've got 30 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. If you're lucky, four hours to photograph with people. So it becomes more of a trick and a, and a, um, in a game of, um, because you're photographing everyday people and you're not photographing models and superstars who know what to do in front of a camera, you're spending so much time being people's therapists trying to calm them down. Don't look at the camera. Don't look, just do your thing. Just yeah. do your thing. I know. Just, just be natural. Sure. Right. Be natural. You're, you asked to come into my damn home and photograph me to see what I do at home. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to act natural. You know, if I had a photographer over here right now, I, I'm sure I'd curtail what I'm doing. So I didn't, it felt, uh, fake to me. Yeah, I can get that. It didn't feel real. And, you know, and that's a theme. Again, we go back to that, you know, what's behind the facade, mm-hmm. you know, what's behind your, your makeup? What's, what's, you know, where do you live? That kind of stuff. I also didn't like the fact that editors would sit at their desk and dream up of the images that you were going to get on the assignment, you know? Um, and when you came back with something different and not that they question you, I don't know, you know, after a while, it just, it really dragged me down. I didn't have much luck. I had, I had luck with, uh, one editor, uh, Adele Chavez at the Albuquerque Tribune, uh, who I'm still very close with today. And I worked for her. She was my director of photography, I think in 1997. So it's 20 years ago this Mm -hmm. summer. Um, and I'm still very close with her. Um, all the other editors, um, hopefully they're not listening to this. <laughs> and if they are, I don't really care. Most of them can go to hell. I mean, honestly, I know that sounds really harsh, but um, there's rules and conventions about how to make compelling pictures and what fits into a newspaper. And, and every newspaper you go to has different, they all have the overall rules and conventions, but the styles are a little bit different. So every time you switch newspapers, you kind of have to alter what you're doing. Right. I never felt like anybody really needed me there. I felt like I was more disposable. And it's probably because I thought too much about it. <laughs> and I cared too much. You know, I, the, one example, one example, and, and only because I have 900 examples of what I mean by a lot of these people can screw off. You know, I, I was working in, um, in Memphis. Imagine a, a, a bleeding heart, liberal white guy born and raised in San Francisco doesn't even believe in the 90s that racism still exists. Don't even start with today. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's the 90s and I'm from the Bay Area and I'm thinking I've never heard the word the N word. I don't know what that that means. I've, I've heard of it. I know what it means, mm-hmm. but I've never heard anybody use it in its context. And I get this job and I go off to um, Memphis, the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Um, this was actually right before the uh, I went from the Commercial Appeal to the Albuquerque Tribune job. Um, the one that I, that I enjoyed with Adele Chavez, which was great because I was ready to quit after that job. So what happened there is, you know, it was like, I think I was on my first week or two and I was given this incredible assignment to go to the University of Tennessee. There was a, an all white fraternity that had been banned from campus a year prior and they were up for review to return to campus. 
And it was all due to race relations. They did, I don't remember exactly what they did, but something happened and they were booted off campus and they were up for their review. So the, the story started out as, you know, race relations have improved and they're really thinking about bringing back this fraternity. So they sent me out to go photograph on the campus race relations. Well, that's really problematic to do. I mean, how do you photograph mm-hmm. race relations in a in a non 1960s world, you know, where there's not that many visual clues? So I found, you know, as a journalist, you investigate, you research, you talk to people, you find out, and then I found out that there was a massive meeting that night that was gonna um, that was being held by the students, uh, you know, black and white, and they were gonna all get together and do a kind of a roundtable forum discussion. Mm-hmm. And I called back to the uh, the newspaper and I said, you know, I'm not really finding anything, but there is this thing tonight. I think I should go to it. I'm sure I can meet people and then learn a little bit more. They didn't really seem very interested in that, which I thought was kind of startling because I, I really believe that would help me get to the meat and the heart of this, this, uh, this story. And I'm new to Memphis. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I don't really understand race relation issues. I, I need some, you know, context here, especially Southern race relation right. issues, which is very, very different than, you know, other parts of the country. So it went back and forth. Uh, I get this call and they're like, you know what? Just hold off because the story, the, the writer of the story has, uh, is, is thinking about it. And, and we might go on the angle that race relations are now bad. Okay. You're, you know where I'm going with this. You know, you're instantly, I saw that. You're like, what? <laughs> so I keep my mouth shut. Of course, I'm really low man on the totem pole. Keep your mouth shut. And the problem was, is that this went back and forth like four or five times during the day. Race relations are good. Race relations are bad. They're good. They're bad. They're good. They're bad. And this whole time I'm thinking, what am I photographing? Am I photographing they're good or bad? And I finally just spoke up. I said, they're either good or they're bad. And I think that the the students need to be able to tell us what they think Mm -hmm. in order for us to, I mean, who is this writer sitting in a newsroom deciding at 1 p.m.? No, they're bad. No, 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 let's do an angle where they're good. No, 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 bad. That'll be better. I've got more, you know, I've got more uh, cont- uh, contacts of, of people who are going to talk about how they're bad. And then it ended at the end of the day where the editor asked me to take a picture of a black person and a white person sitting on a bench next to each other. And maybe they've got their backs turned to each other. That says there's race tensions. And I spoke up which was the end of my career there, two weeks into it. And I said, you know, that doesn't tell me anything about race relations. That tells me that it's two people on a park bench who don't know each other. Because a white person would do that to a white person and a black person would do that to a black person. Mm -hmm. And I'm a photojournalist. I'm not a magazine illustrator. So from that point on, I got taken off the main newspaper and I got put down in um, Olive Grove, Mississippi, and after a couple of months, I just laughed. Yeah. I mean, it was stupid. So that is kind of the types of things that I would encounter at newspapers. That's an extreme example, right. but that's the kind of thing that you were up against. These, you know, you have a photo editor and a writer. A writer can really do most of their reporting from the phone. And an editor is, I don't know what editors do. 
they make sure that they take the photographs that 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 you take the most simplistic photographs that fit that a three year old can figure out. That's you know you you have to write you write I think for a third grade level and your photographs have to read you know like that. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't for me. You know, I, I kept trying. I, you know, I was taken to uh, Chicago. That's what brought me to Chicago was a newspaper job. But when that ended after a year and a half, I basically put up my middle finger and was like, this is stupid. This is not what I want to do. Well, let's talk about the work that you've been doing for the last few years. Yeah. Um, that's really fascinating stuff. And it's sort of on par with all this thematically, what we've been talking about. Yeah. You know, for the past hour has just been like, the whole idea of facades and secrets and, you know, and persona. Uh-huh. For people who haven't seen your work and seen what you've been up to, why don't you describe that? And how did you, how did you get into it? The, uh, so the street stuff that I've been shooting recently, you uh, mean, or the, the... The stuff that you've been earning a living with, the commercial work. Oh, yeah, you want to go down stuff. that road. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, you know, it, that stuff is so fresh. It's like I don't mind talking about the journalism stuff, but then the uh, the event industry stuff, it's, it's, it's something I'm still living. So it's uh, 16 years of my life that I, I, I'm really excited to, to put to rest, although I hope that, again, <laughs> none of these people that hire me for these jobs uh, are listening to this. So, yeah, so I, I, I went to Chicago. I got laid off uh, al- uh, along with everybody else uh, that day. It was uh, an awful day. I think there were 34 people in the photo department Friday morning, June mm-hmm. 1st, 2001. By 2 p.m., I was the last because I went straight to my assignment that morning. Uh, walked into the office, and I think I was the 27th person to be laid off. I didn't know what to do. I knew I didn't want to move back to San Francisco because the dot-com was still, you know, pregnant. <laughs> and finding a livable place in San Francisco was uh, problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had spent my journalism career moving every three to six months to different states. So Chicago, I had been there for a year and a half. I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't lived in the same city since I, you know, six, seven years at that point. So I decided to to stay, and I accidentally slipped into event photography. I was actually um, in the process of walking away from photography again, mm. second time, I've, and, and I'm on the third time right now. <laughs> I have a love hate with it. So uh, I I just started. My dad was like, "Why don't you just do you know tap into some of your contacts from these newspapers and just do some freelance work and try to figure out what you're you know what what's next? You know that way you've got some money coming in." Well, it ended up snowballing. Uh, and before I knew it, I couldn't get away from it. <laughs> and I thought that, I thought that's what I wanted to do. So I, I fell into private events and parties. It started out as, as small private events and parties, but I knew right away that I wanted to photograph for, uh, very wealthy people and celebrities. And so I spent the next, um, what was that? 2000. Well, 2001 is when I got laid off. It was really about 2002 or three that I started doing events. And then by 2005, really two years into it, I was like, I'm either going to photograph for rich people and celebrities, or I'm going to leave this because doing an average person's birthday party is not very interesting. Um, and they don't want to pay more than 200 bucks. Right. So, but I love the idea because again, I'm coming out of, Journalism, which I already said, 45 minutes is not enough time. And I love these parties because I could go in and spend seven, eight, nine, ten hours with people. Mm-hmm. You can't even get that at a, at a newspaper. 
And there was something quite nice about people wanting you to be there. It's, it's hard when you're at a newspaper. You know, you, again, you have to be a therapist for people and you know, convince them why you need to be here and that kind of stuff. So I, I felt comfortable pursuing that. It became the business stuff is what took over. Right. So during that time, I lost all of my ability and interest to do long-term projects. So all that stuff seized for about 17, 18, 17 years. So all those projects that we just got done talking about, mm-hmm. and there's even two more that we didn't talk about that were squeezed in there, I just stopped doing it. I figured it's all or nothing. Because those projects to me were 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And if you're working 60 hours a week for a newspaper, how do you find the time to do it. And then when you're running a business, then that became a problem. Because if you're not photographing, photographing when you're running your own business is about 10% of your job. Yeah. It's all paperwork, it's emails, it's meeting client expectations, it's post-processing pictures, it's re-processing pictures because the client's not happy. It's getting touch-ups because they are still not happy. And then you're marketing and then you're having to get the connections, 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 connections. Connections are like 90% of the job. It's who you know. It's not because you're good. So I started developing a world where my entire, everything I did and breathed, my friends were all planners and industry people. I, I thought that, you know, success was because I was making money. I, you know, I think that's what my, you know, my breakdown was when I moved to LA, I realized that, you know, the money stuff has made me sick mm. and the, the lying and the cheating and the backstabbing. I mean, you know, when there's somebody coming up to, to, that wants to shoot that party and they're offering to do it for free yeah. when you're getting paid a lot of money, it's terrifying. So you do whatever you can to then go backstab them. It's a horrible process and <laughs> it was a learning process for sure. I mean, I learned a lot and I, and I, and I try not to get too upset that I spent so much time in it because I learned so much about style and composition and, and, you know, all that stuff. I don't know. Maybe it ruined me. Who knows? But that's what I've done. So, uh, when I met my, my partner, uh, who's now my husband, we've been together 11 years. Uh, I met him in 2005 and he saw me just as things were starting to kind of do that turn upward. So he's actually watched the whole process mm-hmm. and it's, it's not a, it, it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one. I, I wanted to, you know, but it was curiosity. I mean, I don't really, I honestly, I don't care about my friend's birthday parties, but really don't you wonder what a $5 million birthday party for a three-year-old looks like I mean, in Beverly this, Hills? You know, this, <laughs> when we think about photography, so much of the body of work that it's out there is, uh, is largely, about people who are disenfranchised, right? Very little of it is middle class to upper middle class. And I think with respect to middle class people being the subject matter for photograph, largely it's because photographers are middle class and they don't see middle classness as an interesting subject matter. And then when it comes to upper class, those people are very protective mm-hmm. of their imagery. So you see even less of that. Though mm-hmm. there have been, you know, like Lauren Greenfields has explored yeah. that marvelously and some other photographers have. But part of it is, is as, as with the transvestites, is get, sort of gaining access. Yeah. What I like about your pictures, even though it's event photography, quote unquote, a, a kind of photography that people usually just see as functional photographs, just mm-hmm. documentation. 
I think that everything we've been talking about of about who you are personally infuses everything that you do with the camera. So when I look at those pictures, I'm not just seeing sort of throwaway shots. Your curiosity about them, your your desire to to go beyond just the obvious. I can see it in your photographs. Even though you've been doing it for a long time and largely you saw it as sort of the way to earn a living, I look at those photographs and I can't separate the photographer that we've been talking about from those images. That's interesting. You know, I think a lot of that might, and, and maybe the way I talk about it might have to do with the fact that I'm still living it. Yeah, being you know, so close. It's like, you know, I am a middle class person and middle class to me seems kind of boring. So yes, mm-hmm. I go low or I go higher. <laughs> um you know, and maybe in 10, 15 years, I'll be able to look back and look at this body of work of 16 years of events. And then especially the luxury events that I've been doing over the last seven ish years, it might all make sense. You know, um, I think the photography to me, it's just visually the, um, the way I approach it is very different than I would on the street Mm -hmm. or, going into somebody's home as a true documentary photographer. I do have to meet a lot of criteria and there are some expect a lot of expectations. So I look at the work and the work seems so different. Like it's all shot with 70 to 200s or 85 12s or 51 12s and you know because I have to be a little bit further away um, mm-hmm. when I like to be close to people. So I'll be interested in seeing how the, what what all that stuff means to me in in terms of my timeline of thirty years. But you're right; it yeah. all does. All that was a curiosity, and I have this habit of getting to where I want to be mm-hmm. and then leaving it. You know, I got where I wanted to be with journalism. I won uh, some incredible awards and grants, and was given opportunities. Uh, very early on and i'm i i don't i don't think i knew at the time how lucky i was so no but i think that that like we were talking about before the perspective of time yeah well when you return to that work right. at whatever point you'll probably make some discoveries that you can't right now because you're looking at it as a sort of a practical means to earn a living yeah and not looking at it with the artistic eye because you're looking in terms of how this may satisfy your client not so much but satisfying you creatively though. Right. Inevitably you are trying to satisfy yourself when you're trying to make a picture. People have often said that, you know, you really need to like, uh, you need to focus when you're at these jobs, you really need to be working for yourself too. You need to be grabbing these shots. And I'll tell you that is rough. It's very rough. Cause I go in with the most extreme tunnel vision and you're putting out so many fires. I mean, to say that I just show up at a party and all I get to do is photograph. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what happens, but you're also the photographer for about 60 people. And that is, um, that's a lot to take on. So not only am I the photographer for the client, I'm a photographer for whatever venue we're at, the caterer, Mm -hmm. the florist, Anybody who's done interior designing, because all these parties have been decorated, I could go on and on and on. Any vendor that has touched this party is emailing me the next day for their marketing photos. And if you don't get them good marketing photos and you know what they need because they're, you know, you just get online and you just, it's like a Pinterest board. You just spit the shit back out. That's not good networking. You need to give them the best marketing images possible. So when I have 60 clients at a party, it's impossible for me to go in and say, okay, for the next 15 minutes, it's all about me. Mm -hmm. And I shoot with very different gear. I don't shoot with a Canon 
you know, for my personal work. So unless I'm photographing with my little mirrorless, it, it, that feels commercial and that doesn't feel commercial. It's maybe there are people who can do it. I have yet to be able to figure out how to do it. So what I have is a body of work that's very commercial from that. But I think it is fascinating in a way, because like you said, it's, um, I just wanted to know what these parties look like. That was, that was it. And I wanted to make a little bit of extra money, but I wanted decor. I wanted to be excited. I knew that your birthday party was boring. There was nothing to photograph, but I knew that theirs was going to be sensational. Yeah. So. Well, given what you just said about having to serve all these masters, why street photography now holds probably holds an appeal because you only have to satisfy yourself. Right, right. Is that what kind of drew you into into that, or was it something else? You photography, the street photography, the street photography. Yeah. So uh, when I moved to LA, and I, I the transition uh, was very rough. And I moved here because all my clients are here. So it, it, it's still something I'm trying to, to get through. I don't, I don't quite know how to articulate it yet. So you'll have to excuse me. But I did know that I, I, I felt very, um, you know, I think I had a nervous breakdown. It was a mixture of midlife crisis. I was having a nervous breakdown. I was in a new place. You know, you don't realize when you're self-employed how much you are using how much uh, you're using a, a, your knowledge, things around you, people around you. You know, a client comes up with something. I know exactly where to go and get this done. I know who to call. But all of a sudden, I didn't know where to go, who to call. I had no friends out here, nothing. Mm-hmm. And when you're catering to a luxury client that you never say no to, you never say no to a, nux- a luxury client. And if it's too big, you figure out how to get it done, period. And that was terrifying, for me. So the commercial work, I mean, yeah, I, I'd spent the last couple of years in Chicago, just grappling with it, having these, these, I mean, I look back and it's like, wow, I was kind of having breakdowns with this stuff for a couple of years, the stress, you know, I think the first big, big celebrity that I got was Mario Lopez, uh, four, four years ago, I think it was. I mean, that was epic. I mean, I had to go back to the backside of Joe Francis's house, the guy who owns Girls Gone Wild, uh, the CEO of Girls Gone Wild. And I just sat there and cried and I called home. <laughs> 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 I'm sitting at Mario Lopez's wedding at, at Joe Francis's house and crying. The street photography just it, it came about naturally. It was a, it kind of called me. I've, I've never really been a street photographer, so it was awkward to me. But I needed something that was about me. Mm-hmm. And I needed something that had no rules. It didn't matter what I was photographing. All I wanted to do was photograph what, uh, what interested, interested me and what I was drawn to. And L.A., as I said during the talk, has some of the most unusual light. Um, although now I'm used to it now. So I, I, maybe I need to go away for a couple of years. <laughs> So I was just drawn outdoors. I needed to get outside. And um, the iPhone wasn't doing it for me anymore. Uh, so I bought myself a little uh, Fuji X100, something that I knew it would fit in my pocket and carry around. And I used that for mm-hmm. a year. I didn't really photograph that many people for the first year. It was typically urban landscapes or just, it, it always involved light. But I remember I could, I remember being really excited and and charged i mean it was, i haven't felt that way since i don't know decades it was really interesting so it kept me alive you know because then i'd come home and i'd have to figure out how to pump out some of these 
parties. Mm. So really it was a way to, to stay alive. And it wasn't that I had chosen that. I think it, it, it chose me. I grappled with the fact that there weren't people in these pictures for a year, but I had to keep reminding myself that it wasn't about that. There, there was no assignment. The only reason that you went out there and did this was because there was nobody telling you what to do. I was so, you can tell I was very tired of people telling me what to do. And then people started creeping into my photos a little bit. And then it started to feel really good. And that challenge felt interesting and it felt right. So then I started photographing people. So really only the last year and a half of the work that I've done is involves people in street photography. You know, I'd love to be able to, to, you know, photograph with such precision is Matt, but that's not how I see Matt Stewart, but that's not how I, uh, I don't see that way. You know, you look at my photographs and, and they are kind of lonely solitude images and they are very clean. They're all organized. They're very German. And again, it's fascinating to look at that because it's the same stuff I've been carrying with myself yeah. for 30 years. So that's kind of how the, the street photography thing came about. It was, uh, it was the, the fall and the decline of, you know, another round of commercialism the event work. I wish that I had found street photography when I was in Chicago, but as uh, people remind me, that's, that's a hard place to street photography because, um, the winters last from October to May. And honestly, I didn't care that much to be pounding the streets in 30 below weather. I just <laughs> don't, I, I didn't find that interesting. And then even when it was summer, I found summers to be equally as disgusting there because it's so hot and so humid. So being able to walk down the street and you're just constantly dressed drenched in sweat. Chicago is a very inspiring city, but it does make sense in hindsight why I didn't discover this part of me there. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated about um, the event at the Los Angeles Center of Photography that Julia Dean put together was it, it really demonstrated what street photography can be when, when it comes from a very personal place. Because you could see all the work, whether it was Michelle Groskopf or Rinzi Ruiz or all the people who, who were up there, they were all coming from really unique perspectives. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they were photographing locales and scenes that were very familiar to all of them. But each of them was making it their own. Right. And it wasn't just about aesthetics. It wasn't just about the choice of focal length or how they exposed for the scene. It wasn't just the mechanical stuff. It was really about who they were. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I was very appreciative about that, that weekend. Cause I think that sometimes it can be very difficult to validate your own work just right. because you're sort of close to it. Right. But even though I, I could look at all of the work that was there and realize that uh, even the way that I shoot, even though it doesn't compare to what they're doing, is valid. And right. I think that that's, that's sometimes something that can be very sort of difficult to accept. You need to find that sort of comfort in your own and go, okay, I'm okay. And um, I really appreciate your, your work, especially hearing the story behind it. Yeah. Then and, and today, I think that uh, our conversation sort of reminds me that it really is sort of a journey that it is a constant evolution of self-discovery, as cliche as that may sound. That's really why we keep picking up the camera. Right. And when that isn't there, that's when we probably should stop. Right. 
but I, you know, but I suspect that for, for people like us, it's an, ex- an inexhaustible curiosity, not only about everyone else, but, but ourselves. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't think I really understood any of that until like a year ago, you know, it's, yeah. um, and I, I think I even still, I still have to stop myself. You know, I, I look at Renzi's work. I look at Michelle's work. I look at Matt's work. I look at everybody's work mm-hmm. and I'm always comparing it to myself and what I should be doing. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And we all have that unique perspective and it's, and it is a valid perspective. Like you said, I think what becomes difficult is when you get people who get that recognition on a totally different level. And then you're thinking like, well, that's clearly what is applauded. So I need to figure this out. Mm -hmm. I need to go that way. I, I think my journey that I've just shared Hopefully somebody can, you know, extract uh, some of the, you know, one of the points about it is that once you're not being yourself, if you care, I care about photography, I care about my vision, and I care about my curiosity. And the problem is, is that when you give that up, it's a very miserable experience. So I don't want to go out and try to shoot like James Noctway. Mm -hmm. I don't want to figure that stuff out. I can use, and I, I keep bringing up Matt Stewart only because I assisted him last week, and so he's on my mind 24-7 right now. Um, he'll go away soon, but not in a bad way. But those moments and the different layers, I look at Alex Webb's work, my gosh, how many, how many more years can I look at Alex Webb's work, the same photographs, and feel completely incompetent? <laughs> um, but that's what inspiration's great for, you know? It's it's inspiration being inspired by Alex Webb's light and the way he layers, mm-hmm. you know? It's something that's quite nice to have in the back of your head. Right. But I don't want to ruin myself so much that I'm trying to figure that out. This is not a game. This is not a game. This is about you. And it's about your vision. It's about your interpretation of the world. And commercial photography is not about you. It's about them and their vision that you need to figure out how to make them happy. Mm -hmm. So they're two totally different animals. I don't know. That's, uh, that's, that, that's why I would love to get away from the commercial work, but I don't know how else to make money. People tell me that I'd be very unhappy pushing papers at an insurance company, but a nine to five Monday through Friday job sounds really enticing right now. And then I look at people like Renzi who are like, God, it almost killed me. And he discovered photography because he was so miserable doing that. It's all perspective. It's all perspective, you know? Uh-huh. So, um, well, my last question that I yeah. ask each guest is mm-hmm. I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh my God. Am I allowed to pick Diane Arbus? Yeah. Am I? I mean, that's so cliche, but I feel like it should be somebody that, uh, I don't know, somebody's work out there that, that isn't famous, but really Diane Arbus to me is, uh, I, I just got done reading her, uh, the book. It's like 700 pages. Did you know they came out with a new book? No, I didn't. Oh my gosh. Kind of coincided with this uh, in the beginning, the, the work that's traveling around right now. Um, it's basically all of her work before she started taking her iconic work. And I think it's in San Francisco right now. I just saw it at the Met in New York. Um, but there was a book uh, that came out and uh, it's about 700 pages and it's really rough to get through <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the final 50 pages. You know, they're getting through her suicide. I was just 
crying and crying and crying. And I'd have to, you know, read a page and put it down. It took me, I think, a month to get through the final 50 pages. I have absolutely no idea why. I think because I identify with her. I identify with that curiosity. You know, she could really care less about the photographs. And I, I really do believe that she would have been more than happy to be taking these photographs, show them to a few friends, somehow make a living off of it, and then just mm-hmm. keep moving on. And, you know, she discovered that you have to market yourself and push yourself as well. And she had her own struggles with the, the commercial work. You know, I, and, and I think that's why I, I, I still strongly, after 25 years, I, I feel like I missed the opportunity. I, she died, I think, six weeks after I was born. Mm-hmm. But I think Diane Arbus, you know, it's, um, it's classic work. It's, it's um, a different type of street photography. You know, it's not the Gary Winogrand stuff. Yeah. It's not Lee Friedlander. It's, you know, not Klein's work. But it's street photography. Regardless if she was going into people's homes, it originated from the street. Yeah, and I think she's a worthy photographer to explore in depth because I think there's a surface appreciation of of her and uh, I think she's probably very deserving of diving in deep because I think there's a complexity to her and her work. Yeah. Uh, and I've never uh, really looked at her, although I wasn't alive in the, the 60s, so the whole idea that these are freaks was is kind of yeah. bizarre to me, but maybe that's because I grew up in a different era. But honestly, a lot of those people... I don't know. They don't look like freaks to me. But I see what, you know, what she was drawn to. They're just little, you know, if you look at some of the captions on my Instagram feed, they're details. Usually what I'm finding when I when I see something on the street is a, it could be a detail. Mm-hmm. And um, Michelle <laughs> hones in on those details. Yeah. I still keep my distance and make a photo of a, you know, of a scene. And I usually have to call out that detail. It could be somebody's, you know, fingernails, you know. Yeah. But Arbus was uh, was very inspired by you know lady with a shiny with shiny lipstick stuff like mm-hmm. that you know that's the the stuff that drew her and uh, I kind of have that in me too you know it's just curiosity I think her curiosity and my curiosity are very similar I think what I want to do with these people when I get into their homes is very different. Thank you. Yeah, it was thank great you. talking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Kevin for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his work by visiting editorial.kevinweinstein.com or click on the link in the show notes. Thank you all for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Law Talker from Canada for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so by visiting PayPal by clicking on our donate button on the candid frame website and the show notes. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including Alan Doyle. You are helping make TCF even better. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodionx. Remember to help spread the word. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.